0: Hello, this is Brian Bullington, and I am pastor of New Song Family Church in Ventuk, Namibia. I'm so glad that you have joined us today, and it's my prayer that this podcast message will help you to grow closer to Jesus as you walk daily with Him. Good morning, church. Also, good afternoon and good evening to you, whenever and wherever you're watching. We're continuing in our series in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and finding its answers to the question, why am I here? Today, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Go ahead and open that up with me. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus from his prison cell. And you might think that Paul might be asking himself, why am I here in prison? After doing such great work furthering the Gospel around the world, why has God allowed me to be locked up in this cell awaiting trial and possibly a death by beheading? But interestingly, that's not how Paul sees his situation. He sees his place in God's plan as being exactly where he is meant to be, to the point that he describes himself in our passage today as I, Paul, the prisoner, Of Christ Jesus. Not prisoner of the Romans, not prisoner of the church's enemies, but prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul adopts that as part of his job title. It's not the job he planned out his life for, but it's the job that God called him into. And Paul is obviously very excited about it. He's so excited that when he starts this passage, He's about to go into prayer for the Ephesians, but then he gets to this job title in verse 1 and suddenly he has to put his prayer on hold and go into a 12 verse digression about this perfect job God has given him. He swerves off course to say in verse 2, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. He doesn't go into detail about how he got this job, Surely you've heard the story. Now we know Paul's story from the book of Acts. The story of a man trained as a Pharisee, eager to serve the God of Israel by persecuting this new heretical church that worships some guy called Jesus as the Messiah. Until one day, Jesus appears to Paul and tells him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Remember, Gentile simply means any people who are not the people of Israel. So we're probably all Gentiles here. Paul, now a follower of Christ, begins to move around the ancient world, preaching the gospel and starting churches among the Gentiles. This job gets him so much hate from Jews and Gentiles that people start riots. They create plots to kill Paul until he ends up in a prison in Rome writing this letter. This is what Paul means when he gives himself the job title, The Prisoner of Christ Jesus for the Sake of You Gentiles. Now, if that's his job title, then his job description is in verses 2 and 3. The administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. Paul's job description is to be the administrator of God's grace to the Gentiles. He uses the word in Greek that's the same word that we would use for a person who manages and directs the household for its owner, a steward. These days, we would talk about a managing director. Paul is the managing director of the grace of God to the Gentiles. Paul then defines the grace of God that he is talking about, administrating. He says that it's the mystery God revealed to him and that he's already written about it briefly. He's referring back to what he wrote in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, we could look back at chapter 2, but we already had a really excellent sermon on that last week. So instead, let me just read you the summary Paul himself gives us in chapter 3, verse 6. Through the gospel... The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. That is what Paul has already written about briefly to the Ephesians. And he says in verse five, that by reading what he said in chapter two, we are able to understand the mystery that God only hinted at in the old Testament, but has revealed fully to his prophets and his apostles, that is, Paul and the other leaders in the early church. The inclusion of Gentiles into the people of God as equal partners with Israel, forming one people together for God rather than two separate people. It's something that's hinted at in the Old Testament, but it's always so much easier to see something in hindsight when it's pointed out to you afterwards. And that's what happened here. Jesus made it clear to Paul and to Peter. And then once they looked back into the Old Testament, a lot of verses suddenly made a lot more sense. Verses like even in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with God's people. See, the Israelites knew that their God is the one true God. And certainly God deserves worship and praise from Gentiles. But... They probably figured the only way Gentiles could ever really worship God would be to become Israel's slaves, to become second-class citizens in the kingdom. Uh, Or maybe the best they could do is to try their hardest to live the way the Israelites live. But they would always remain as outsiders for all time, second-class citizens of the people of God. Gentiles could never become true Israelites. But that is not God's plan. God's plan is heirs together, members together, sharers together. That was the plan God revealed to Paul and to Peter and to the other apostles. And Paul wants to make sure we know he didn't make this up. Uh, He also didn't discover this mystery himself because he's some sort of Bible genius. He says it was only through the working of God's power that he could have this understanding and that he could get this job. He describes himself as less than the least of the Lord's people. He was so far away from doing what God wanted. He was truly an enemy of God and of God's church. And yet God's grace allowed Paul to play, not just a part in the future of the church, but to become the managing director of the grace of God to the Gentiles. What does it look like to be the managing director of the grace of God to the Gentiles? Well, obviously, it involves preaching to the Gentiles, as Paul says in verse 8. But it's actually a much more difficult job than that. It involves working out how to make two very different cultural groups into one new kingdom of God's people. Now, Paul tells us that in reality, the spiritual reality, the real reality, the hard work has already been done by Christ. Back in chapter 2 in verse 14, Paul says that Christ has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. How? By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Christ's death not only unifies his people by saving them altogether, but it actually sets aside the law, which was a barrier and a dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. The spiritual reality is that the two are now one. The hard work has been done. Paul's job is much more modest by comparison. He had to help these newfound brothers and sisters to work out how to live out that harmony together in their day-to-day lives. And what was the purpose of this administration of God's grace to the Gentiles? Well, Paul explains it in chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12. He says, God's intent was that now, through the church... The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. What does that all mean? It means that when the church lives as heirs together of God's inheritance, When the church exists as members together of one body, and when the church shares together in the promise of salvation in Christ, then as a church, we show off God's wisdom in sending Christ to save us all. In fact, the church being unified this way, being able to overcome the dividing wall that existed between Jews and Gentiles in the past, shows off Christ's saving power so strongly that it isn't just a message to those around us in our lives. It shows God's wisdom to the spiritual powers that stand against him. This is God saying, I am so powerful. I am so in control. My ways are so wise and so perfect that when I send my son to redeem humanity, Even the most different cultures can come to me together confidently through faith in him. The church unified is a sermon from God to Satan and his demons saying, I win. And that is great. God helped unite two groups of people back in the beginning of the church. But some people might think this whole Jew-Gentile problem is a thing of the past. And they might ask, why would I even bother preaching a sermon on that today? The church these days is predominantly Gentile, non-Jewish. There aren't that many Jews around. I'm guessing certainly there are very few Jews in our church here in Vintook. So isn't this just a dead issue? Don't we have more important things to worry about today? Things more relevant for our time. But churches being united is a continuing issue. Paul devoted so much of his letters to the issue of how Jews and Gentiles should relate to one another in church. Have you ever noticed how much of the New Testament is dedicated to dealing with this message of Jews and Gentiles being united together in faith? We read about Paul dealing with this issue in Acts. Paul wrote about it in Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians. It's actually a much broader problem than we might think because this problem is not just about Jews and Gentiles. It's about any time that someone feels like they do not inherit the kingdom of God as an equal heir with the rest of us. It's about any time that someone feels. They can't truly be as valuable a member of the church as someone else. It's about any time where someone feels that they cannot share in the promises of God along with us. There are still people in the church today who think that Jews have a closer relationship with God than Christians. There are still people who think that Christianity is a white man's religion And that African people, Asian people, Latino people, Pacific Islanders, even, ironically, Middle Eastern people cannot know God and Jesus Christ or that they don't need to. There are people who think they aren't smart enough to be a Christian or they're not pure enough or they're too young or they're too old or they're too disabled. And sometimes people think that because of laws, commands, and regulations that the church puts up as barriers to admission. And they're not always written rules. They're unwritten rules that we just sort of follow by agreement. Why are we here, church? Paul told us, we are here to reflect God's manifold wisdom so strongly That not only do those around us get the message, but even demons and Satan himself sees it. Do we want to be a church that trumpets the truth? That we can all come to God confidently and freely through faith in Christ with no other baggage, no other requirements. If that's what we want to be, then we need to be a church unified. How do we do it? I think first, it's worth pausing for a moment here and actually praising God for what he has already done for us. As I said before, I reckon probably pretty much all of us are Gentiles. If Christ had not come and set aside the law, we would still be divided from being the true people of God. We would still be second class and the Jews would still be lording it over us with their extra special relationship with God. We would still be the unclean people, only fit for chopping wood and carrying water. But we're not. God sent Christ to die for us as much as anyone. And God hired Paul as the managing director of his grace to us to ensure that we are heirs together members together, and sharers together. The work is done. Praise Jesus. That is great news. Let's remember that, and let's humbly keep that in our minds as we seek to welcome people into the kingdom of Christ alongside us. What else can we do? Well, I think we can look at what Paul did as part of his job as the administrator of God's grace to the Gentiles, and make sure we're continuing his legacy. I'm not saying we need to become the managing director of God's grace the way Paul was, but what we can do at the very least is follow the instructions that he left us. What did Paul do? Well, as he said here in verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 3, he preached the gospel to those who hadn't heard it. He didn't let people live and die without hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, without hearing that Christ died for them. We should also make sure that we're not discriminating in who hears the gospel, because the gospel is everyone's. Let's make sure we're committed to everyone hearing it. But as I said before, administrating God's grace for all is much bigger than just preaching the gospel. Paul wrote to the Gentile believers over and over again about how they can live out their day-to-day lives as members of the kingdom of God in Christ together with the Jews. He wrote telling them there are a lot of things that Gentiles do that they should give up if they want to live the righteous life God calls them to. So, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul will tell his readers... They must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. There were things that the Gentiles were doing and thinking as part of their cultural heritage which were totally inappropriate for God's people to be doing. Things like indulging in impurity and being full of greed. We need to continue telling new Christians that they need to change their lives. They don't need to change to become acceptable to God, but they need to reflect the reality of their new heavenly citizenship. The truth is, most people in the world grow up without Christian parents, without Christian role models, and without a Christian culture showing them how they should view the world. These people need to hear the gospel. And when they respond... They need to learn how God wants his people to live. What things from their past are not acceptable and need to be changed or discarded. And it's the church's job to teach them. Greed and impurity are still as wrong as they were when Paul wrote this letter. But today, in this world, they're the norm. There are changes that will happen in the life of a Christian And we need to be honest about those with each other. But we should not hold up these changes as a bar preventing people from coming to know Christ. You know, you must be this holy to enter church. It shouldn't be like that. Repentance and faith are all anyone needs. But we have to be able to help those who do repent and do have faith to live out the life God wants for them to live. Now, Paul also wrote other things to Gentiles because the Gentiles were doing things that actually weren't a problem for the faith, but they were offending their Jewish brothers and sisters. So this was things like they were eating food that had been sacrificed to idols or they were eating blood or the meat of strangled animals. There's nothing sinful or unrighteous about eating these things. Under the new covenant, we're told all food is clean. But the Jews had been avoiding eating blood, for example, in accordance with the law, for over a thousand years. Now, as Paul said, Christ came to set aside the law, because the law is a barrier between Jews and Gentiles. But, for a time, the church had some rules to follow for the sake of its weaker members to ensure that these practices did not make them stumble in their newfound faith in Christ. At the same time, the church strove to strengthen its members so that these activities became more normal. And we see this happen in the church today as well, probably not so much with food, but certainly with new things new technologies, new music, new leadership practices, new forms of entertainment, new fashion, new moral questions. Churches and their members can be a pretty conservative bunch, and they can get easily offended by things that new or young Christians see no problem with, and that on reflection are actually not spiritually problematic. Back in the days of my grandparents, I've been told that if you went to church, you didn't go to see movies. Movies were of the devil, uh, and you didn't go dancing. Uh, dancing was, was not a Christian thing to do. But obviously, cultural practices change and, and their attitudes towards things change. Uh, we see cultural practices of some groups that are disparaged in church. But not because they're against God, it's because people from other cultures in church just don't like them. If we as a church are going to properly administer God's grace to each other, we need to follow Paul's instructions. And that is, we request those who are stronger in the faith and able to accept these new harmless things, not to harm the weaker members of our congregation by flaunting their freedom. For a time. And at the same time, we work with those weaker members of the church to help them realize their issues are not biblical. They're merely cultural or traditional or sometimes simply personal. But it is so vital that we do both of these. I have seen too many churches that ban activities or objects or practices saying that it's to protect their weaker members but never calling those people weak never encouraging the weak to become stronger in their faith and to accept these differences and this eventually puts the weak in charge of the church churches led by those who are weak in the faith become weaker and weaker until they shrivel up and they die now another part of Paul's job as administrator to the grace of the Gentiles, was his fight against the circumcision group in the early church. And we read about them in Acts and Galatians, uh, even in Ephesians. These people, they're Jews, who wanted the Gentiles to focus on following the rules of circumcision and food and cleansing from the Old Testament. But one of those rules of cleansing was that you couldn't hang out with Gentiles. The Gentile Christians might have been born again, but they weren't born again Jewish. The circumcision group wanted Gentile believers to be forever second class. We read in Galatians that even the apostle Peter fell for this scam, and he stopped eating and fellowshipping with his fellow Christians simply because they were not Jews. That's how pervasive and destructive this teaching was. And that's why Paul makes it clear how Christ has destroyed the dividing wall. And he did it by setting aside the law. The Old Testament law is fulfilled in Christ. And part of that fulfillment is the destruction of the idea of God having a special nation of people as his kingdom or a special part of the world as his promised land. The whole earth is the Lord's and all the people in it can come to him freely and confidently through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Who do you think are the first class citizens of the church today? Who are the ones who claim that they have a special relationship with God? And that if you're not one of them, you'll never be as close to God or as useful to the church as they are. I think there are so many examples. Uh, There are those who think they're spiritually better because they come from a long line of Christians. Or maybe even a long line of pastors or church leaders. Whereas new converts from non-Christian backgrounds are thought to be less spiritual. Uh, Maybe we think that only churches that can afford to pay trained pastors deserve good leadership. Poor Christians are somehow second class and they don't deserve good teaching or good leadership. There are those who think that their sins are not as bad as the sins of others. Who think that a Christian who struggles with homosexuality or witchcraft or a Christian who is divorced... They're a worse Christian than one who struggles with pride or greed or arrogance. These things are simply not true. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We often forget that. We in the church can create second-class Christians through valuing intelligence and education as a measure of someone's spiritual life and their closeness to Christ. Reading the Bible does not make you a first-class Christian. Not reading it does not make you a second-class Christian. None of those things are obstacles to knowing God, having faith in Christ, being saved, and being a first-class Christian. None of those things are obstacles to being heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promises of Christ. If you trust in the promises of Christ for your salvation and your future, then you share in those promises just as much as I do. Think of it like this. When a husband and wife have a newborn baby, does that baby become a full part of the family immediately? Of course it does. Babies don't enter the family conditionally until they get a job and start contributing. That little baby is of incredible value to the family immediately. It inherits fully alongside its other siblings immediately. It becomes a full member of the family instantly without having to do anything. It shares in everything that family has as soon as it's born. Heirs together, members together, sharers together. That's the gospel of God's grace. And administering that grace to everyone is how we display God's manifold wisdom, even to his enemies. Does that all sound hard? Does it sound difficult? Does it sound like we might have to make a lot of sacrifices to make that happen? Good, because that's the truth. In Ephesians chapter 3 verse 13, Paul ends the way he begins, reflecting on his suffering in prison for the sake of the Gentiles. He says to the Ephesians, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. The truth is that if we as a church are serious about administering God's grace to those who don't have it, but who God has called into his kingdom just as strongly as he called you and me, then there is going to be suffering. It's going to be costly. It's going to mean helping each other give things up that our cultures tell us are normal. It's going to mean giving up some freedom we have in Christ to help the weak in faith, become stronger. And it's going to mean humbling ourselves in order to exalt those who we have looked down on. We came to this book of Ephesians asking the question, why am I here? And the answer for the church is, we are here to suffer for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for their glory, so that we can be heirs together, members together, and sharers together. This is Rico Veca, and I'm also a pastor at New Song Family Church. I want to thank you for listening to this message today, and it is my hope that you'll join us again for another New Song Family Church podcast.